0: Basic Christian beliefs. Now, on this handout, we've got nine different biblical doctrines. Most of these doctrines are essential to the true biblical Christianity. In other words, uh, most of these doctrines are essential to salvation, though some of them are vitally important, and a guy could be saved by rejecting one or two of these, depending on which ones they were, uh, usually when somebody denies something like the virgin birth of Christ, two years later they deny the deity of Christ and then the bodily resurrection. And in other words, it puts you on very dangerous ground to say the least. Uh, I think it's safe to say that if every Christian really got grounded in these nine doctrines here, that even if somebody asked you what Micah chapter 5 verse 9 means, Even if you blew it on that, as long as you don't contradict these nine doctrines here, you're really not going to lead somebody astray into deep heresy, okay? Unfortunately, when you turn on Channel 20, the supposed Christian station, there's some real good programs on there, but there's a lot of lousy ones. And in those lousy ones, there's guys that deny some of these. And that is real... I mean, right at the top, the Trinity, only one God. We've got some guys out there saying that Christians are gods with a small g. So uh, the the non-Christian cults deny almost all of these, or at least a few of them. And uh, so if we get grounded in these nine basic Christian beliefs, and we're going to be talking on these, by the way, for the next three or four weeks or so. um, If we get grounded in these, it will basically set up the parameters... That if we don't leave these, uh, we we will not get into any really bad heresy. And that's the main reason why I wanted to uh, go over this. With that, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on a cross of wood for us. We recognize that we're sinners, that we cannot save ourselves, that we can never earn uh, the kingdom of heaven on our own but that you sent your son to die in our place to take our punishment for us and that he freely offers salvation to us so that all we have to do is just trust in him alone for salvation trust in him as our savior, worship him as our God and he will save us Uh, but we also thank you Lord for giving us your word but you warn us over and over again uh, throughout the scriptures that we are to handle your word accurately so I pray that as we study the basic Christian beliefs, the essential Christian beliefs and other vitally important Christian beliefs, uh, that we would take hold of these, that we would recognize these, uh, these truths and we would defend these truths and that we would be careful not to contradict them in any way. And Lord, I pray for those who are hurting in the church with physical ailments, that you would bring healing to their lives, uh, if it be your will. And also, our Lord, I pray for those who are trying to break sinful habits, that you would encourage them and show them that you've given them the strength to say no to their sins. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Uh, By the way, I have one more announcement before we get started. I forgot, Gary's the manager of the Dunes Motel, and they, they are hiring right now. They're basic Christian beliefs. This is is so vitally important, especially it's vitally important for all Christians, but especially for those who want to teach the word. If you want to teach the word, you you should fold this piece of paper up and keep it in your Bible and study the passages that are listed there uh, because you do not want to lead people astray. Now, let's take a look at these doctrines. Number one is the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, We've got non-Christian cults. We've also got people that call themselves Christians that deny this doctrine. We'll talk about that today in creation by God. Uh, The doctrine of evolution, of course, is the the, uh, opposing view there. Uh, Biblical inspiration, that the Bible was inspired by God, and therefore it contains no errors, the doctrine of inerrancy. Salvation by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. We'll talk about that. The virgin birth of Christ, the deity of Christ, that Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The bodily visible return of Christ and the substitutionary death of Christ. So these are nine basic Christian beliefs Uh, that we want to look at. We'll try to look at at least the first two today. Uh, Again, you know, I can't overemphasize this too much. A denial of one of these beliefs either will classify a person as a non-Christian or will put the person on such dangerous footing uh, that they may be in jeopardy uh, of other doctrines falling as well and then being classified as a non-Christian. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 43 verse 10. Isaiah 43 in verse 10. Now the doctrine of the Trinity, you know, you'll hear Jehovah's Witnesses they'll come knocking on your door and they'll tell you that the word Trinity is not in the Bible. And they're right, the word Trinity isn't in the Bible. But then they'll conclude, therefore, it's not a biblical doctrine. And, and that is, they're, they're wrong in that particular point there. Uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, the word, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but the doctrine itself is very biblical. It's a highly complex doctrine in some areas, but it is clearly taught in the Scriptures. And we need to accept, since the Scriptures are the Word of God, we need to accept what the Scriptures say. Now, there's just five basic teachings, five sub-doctrines or subdivisions of this doctrine that when you put these five teachings together, it gives us the doctrine of the Trinity. The Bible clearly teaches that there is only one God. We're going to look at three or four verses But that's plastered all over the Bible. So I don't know why the guys down the block, the Latter-day Saints, claim to believe the Bible's God's Word, but go around saying that uh, there's an infinite number of gods and that Mormon males can become gods someday. The Bible clearly teaches there's only one God. But then the Bible tells us that the Father is God. And the Bible also tells us that Jesus, the Son is God, and the Bible refers to the Holy Spirit as God. But then, you know, now a lot of people might conclude there, like a few churches in our area, that therefore the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit must be the same person. But that's not true because the Bible also teaches that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three separate persons. Now, when you put all these doctrines together, it gives us the doctrine of the Trinity. That the Bible teaches that there is only one true God, but somehow, in a way that goes beyond our understanding, this one true God exists throughout all eternity as three equal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, The illustration I usually give for the doctrine of the Trinity is is that of a single-celled animal. A single-celled animal is one being, but he is one cell. And if a single-celled animal had understanding, the single-celled animal would probably look at Phil Fernandez, who is comprised of millions of cells, and he would probably conclude that since he is one cell and one being, Phil Fernandez, since he has millions of cells, must be millions of beings. And in actuality, Phil Fernandez is millions of cells, but he's only one being. You see, humans live on a higher dimension than single-celled animals do. Well, the fact is, God lives on a higher dimension than humans do. Somehow, humans are one being and one person. Somehow, in a way that we can't understand, God is one being, but he tells us that he's three persons. And I don't understand. Now, if the Bible said God is one God, but He's three gods, that'd be a contradiction. And if the Bible said God is one person, but He's three persons, that would be a contradiction. But it's not a contradiction to say God is one God, but He's three persons. But just because it's not a contradiction doesn't mean we can fully understand what that completely entails. And by the way... You are going to be spreading. If you don't like learning right now, you, you you should get used to it, because when you get when Jesus Christ returns and brings us into His presence throughout all eternity, we're going to be learning more and more about our God throughout all eternity. And the the fact is, we're never going to have Him fully figured out, which is great because I'll tell you, even heaven would get boring if we knew everything there was to know. It would be it would eventually get boring for us. But there's going to be new opportunities to learn more and more about God throughout all eternity. Now, take a look at Isaiah 43, verse 10. Let's take a look at the doctrine of the Trinity. First point, there is only one God. Isaiah 43, verse 10. Now, by the way, the Mormons will tell you whenever the Bible says there's only one God, that means that there's only one God of this planet, is what they tell you. But, of course, there's gods of other planets. That's what they say. Well, look at Isaiah 43:10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, in order, in order that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor will there be one after, and there will be none after me. It's real clear. God is saying he alone is God. There weren't any gods before him, and nobody's going to become God after him. It means Mormon males are not going to become God someday. It's very, very clear. I don't know how God could be more obvious, could make it more plain that there is only one God. Isaiah 44, 6. By by the way, the book of Isaiah is filled with this because at that time, the people in, in Judah, many of them were worshiping false gods. So over and over again, the God of Israel speaks... And proclaims that He alone is God. Isaiah 44, 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. There is no God besides me. By the way, not only does this verse teach that there is only one God, but it also gives you a little hint. There's lots of little hints in the Old Testament that God is more than one person. Because look at that. Look who's speaking. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel. That's one, one person. And his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. That's two persons that are talking. And then it says, I am the first and I am the last. There is no God besides me. So there's little hints thrown in the Scriptures in the Old Testament about the different persons of the Trinity as well. But for our purposes right now, it's very clear. uh, God is saying there is only one God. Isaiah 46, verse 9. And that reads, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Pretty clear. Only one God. Uh, The New Testament teaches this as well. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. Paul's writing, and he says this. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. One God, only one God. Now, that should be pretty clear. That should be real, real clear from the Scriptures that throughout the Scriptures, the Bible teaches there is only one God. Now, take a look at Paul's letter to the Galatians few books before Timothy, Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul writes this, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, right there, he calls God, God the Father. So Paul is saying very clearly that the Father is God. In First Peter chapter one, the Apostle Peter also calls the Father God. First Peter chapter one, and just the first part of the uh, second verse, Peter writes this. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father By the way, he mentions the other two persons of the Trinity here as well He says God the Father And then he talks about By the sanctifying work of the Spirit That you may obey Jesus Christ And be sprinkled with His blood But here he refers to God as God the Father So the Father is called God Now that's as clear as the very first point There's only one God And the Father is called God But now I want to show you some verses where Jesus Christ is clearly referred to as God. Take a look at Titus chapter 2 and verse 13. Paul's letter to Titus chapter 2 and verse 13. And Titus chapter 2 and verse 13 states this, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. So Paul refers to Jesus as our God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Uh, look at uh, Second Peter. We looked at 1 Peter, where Peter called the Father God. But in 2 Peter, Peter calls the Son God. Second Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, not only does Paul call Jesus God, but Peter calls him God as well. In fact, even the Apostle John calls Jesus God. Look at John chapter 1 and verse 1. Now, this is a passage that the Jehovah's Witnesses don't like, so they wrote their own Bible and translated it differently. Gospel of John. John chapter 1 and verse 1, and then we'll look down at verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Very clearly he says the Word was with God, but the Word was God. And then verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse 17, he calls the Word by name Jesus Christ. And so it's real clear that John says that the Word was God and the Word became flesh. We call Him Jesus, so he's referring to Jesus as God. Jesus Himself claimed to be God. John chapter 10, verses 30 to 33. There were many different passages. In John 8, 23 to 24, Jesus said, "...I'm from above, you're from below. Unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins." And I don't want to go into the, the Greek and then trace it back to the Hebrew. And, but basically, he was claiming to be Yahweh. God who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. And the Jews understood him. Then a little later in that same passage, John 8, verses 58 and 59, Jesus said, Before Abraham was born, I am. Not I was, but I am. Always exist in the eternal now. And Jesus referred to himself as I am Before, and Abraham had been, what, 2,000 years before Christ. And Christ said, before Abraham was born, I am. The Jews knew what he was talking about. They picked up stones to stone him. If Jesus never claimed to be God, then he was the worst communicator that this world has ever known. Because every time he opened his mouth, these guys were picking up rocks. He was speaking their language to them. And every time he opened his mouth, they were picking up rocks to stone him for blasphemy. And eventually they did execute him. For blasphemy, because he, being a man, made himself out to be God. That was what they found him guilty. That was the charge that they charged him with in the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. But they knew it wouldn't stick with the Romans. The Romans wouldn't crucify a man based on a, uh, uh, a Jewish religious charge. So then they said, "Well, but he's also claiming to be the Messiah, the Messiah that the Old Testament predicts will knock off Rome. We'll try him for treason under when we go to Pontius Pilate." But the Sanhedrin found him guilty for blasphemy. If Jesus Christ never claimed to be God, he would have never been crucified. He could have just told them, look, you misunderstood me. I didn't claim to be God. They said, fine, just announce it uh, to the people and uh, we'll let you go. And, and that would have been it. Uh, but look at John chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus just got done telling, saying that no one can snatch believers, his sheep, from his hand. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, nobody's big enough to mess with me. Nobody can snatch them out of my hand. And then he says, and nobody can snatch them out of my Father's hand. And don't forget, my Father's greater than all. And then in verse 30, he says, oh, and by the way, I and the Father are one. Now, what he's saying there, it, it, taken it in context, he's saying, nobody can take, can snatch believers from my hand. Nobody can snatch believers from my Father's hand. I and the Father are one in power. We are equal in power. And now the the Jews didn't have to sit around, the Jewish religious leaders didn't have to sit around and give this a lot of thought. Since the God of the Bible is all-powerful, anyone who claims to be as powerful as the Father is claiming to be equal with God. And so, verse 32, uh, the 31. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. You know, it's a regular thing. If you were, uh, if you were going to hang around with Jesus, keep a good distance because people are constantly picking up stones, getting ready to throw at him. Verse 32. Jesus answered them, "I showed you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you stoning me?" The Jews answered him, "For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God." Even John chapter 5, same thing. Because he referred to the God the Father as His Father in a unique way, in a way that He wasn't the Father of anybody else. See, we're sons of God. We're sons and daughters of God, but we're adopted as sons and daughters of God through Jesus. Jesus alone is the Son of God by nature. He is the Son of God by nature because of who He is. We are sons and daughters of God by adoption. Uh, and so it's real clear. Peter calls Jesus God. Paul calls Jesus God. Uh, the Apostle John calls Him God. Jesus refers to Himself as God. You know, the list goes on and on. You could even find Old Testament passages predicting the coming of the Messiah, and they refer to Him as God. Isaiah 9, 6 says that this little child is going to be born, and his name is the mighty God. Uh, Zechariah, talking about the second coming of Christ when he comes with all his angels. Zechariah 14, 5. He refers to the Lord Jesus Christ as the mighty God. And so it's real, real clear throughout the Scriptures. Now, maybe the Jehovah's Witnesses disagree with Peter and Paul and John and Jesus and Zechariah and Isaiah, and the list goes on and on. Maybe they don't like the Bible. If they don't like the Bible, they should make their own, and that's exactly what they did. They went out and they made their own. And they've never revealed who who worked on their translation committee because there's, as far as, as, far as we know, there's no uh, Greek or Hebrew scholars within their organization. So the Bible clearly refers to the Son as God, it uses... Unambiguous terms. And so there's only one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. But also the Holy Spirit is called God. Look at Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. Verses 3 and 4. By the way, there's not much debate about the Holy Spirit being God. Almost everybody, even those who deny the deity of Christ, but if they pay lip service to the Bible, they usually admit that the Holy Spirit is God, but they just confuse Him as being the same person as the Father. So we don't have to spend uh, too much time on this, but just take a look at Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. But Peter said, Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart To lie to the Holy Spirit And to keep back some of the price of the land While it remained unsold Did it not remain your own And after it was sold Was it not under your control Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart You have not lied to men But to God Now it doesn't sound like a whole lot of theology is going on there Until you realize That first Peter tells Ananias That he lied to the Holy Spirit and then in the next verse, he tells them, Oh, and by the way, you, you didn't lie to men, but you lied to God. Lying to the Holy Spirit is lying to God, because the Holy Spirit is God. Uh, the same thing is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 3.16. 1 Corinthians 3.16 the Apostle Paul is speaking. And he says, This Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And the Spirit of the God, the Spirit of God is everybody's in agreement on that throughout the scriptures, the Spirit of God is one of the titles of the Holy Spirit. And so Uh, He's talking to this church gathering. Now later on, he says that our bodies, the bodies of believers, are temples of the Holy Spirit. Here, though, uh, the u is in the plural in the uh, Greek, and so here he's talking about a whole church is a temple of God that God dwells. Trinity Bible Fellowship is a temple of God. God dwells in our church, and he said then he he asked them, uh, "Don't you know uh, that the Spirit of God?" Dwells in you. And so he's referring to God as the Spirit of God. He's calling the Holy Spirit God. We don't have time to turn there, but even in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the eternal Spirit. And God, by definition, is the only eternal being, and He caused to come into existence all temporary beings, such as you and I, beings that had a beginning. And so it's real clear that the Bible teaches that there's only one God. It calls the Father God, the Son God, and the Holy Spirit God. Now, this has led many people. There's a guy out in Port Orchard that's uh, gathering a little bit of a following that uh, denies the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, There's some churches in our area that deny the doctrine of the Trinity. And what, what a lot of people have concluded is well, if there's only one God and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all called God, they must be the same person. And what I want to do right now is look at just a few passages that show very clearly that they are not the same person. Uh, some people used to be called modalist. They would say God would reveal Himself in a different mode at a different time. In other words, in the Old Testament, He revealed Himself as the Father during the gospels he revealed himself as the son and from then on he reveals himself as the holy spirit the problem with that is if you can show the father, god revealing himself as the father son and holy spirit all at the same time it totally dis- destroys that view take a look at Matthew chapter 3 Matthew chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17 Here, Jesus is uh, being baptized by, the Holy, by the, uh, uh, John the Baptist. Verses 16 and 17 of Matthew 3 reads as follows, And after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now think about that. Jesus, that's one person coming out of the water, the Holy Spirit coming down upon him like a dove, and then a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You've got three separate persons. Uh, you know, try to just... The Jesus-only doctrine says Jesus is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If that was true, just replace Jesus for the Spirit of God... And uh, for the voice out of heaven. And you would end up with this. And after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were open, And he saw himself, Jesus, descending as a dove and coming upon Jesus. And behold, Jesus spoke from heaven saying, this is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. That doesn't make any sense at all. It's very obviously three different individuals, three different persons that are being spoken of in this passage. Take a look at John 14. Gospel of John, chapter 14. Jesus is speaking here, and He says some interesting things. Look at verse 16. John 14, verse 16. Jesus is speaking, and He says this, And I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. Now, he identifies the other helper as the spirit of truth. Now, now, just break it down. And I, that's one person, the person speaking, Jesus. And I will ask the Father, that's the second person there mentioned. And he will give you another helper, that's the third person, the Holy Spirit, that's being mentioned. So it's real clear. Again, if you substituted Jesus... If you made Jesus one person, it would read, And I will ask myself, and I will give you myself, that I may be with you forever. And it destroys, it gives a whole different meaning to that passage than what it is right there. Look at John fourteen twenty-six. John fourteen twenty-six Again, Jesus is speaking. And he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, that's one person, whom the Father, that's the second person mentioned here, will send in my name... That's the third person, Jesus. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So again, it's very, very clear uh, that Jesus uh, talks about himself, the Father, and the Holy Spirit as three separate persons. Look at John 15, 26. Jesus is speaking and he says, When the Helper comes, that's one person, whom I, that's two persons, will send to you from the Father, that's three persons, that is the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. It's real clear. Jesus spoke about the Father and the Holy Spirit as separate persons from him. And so the Bible is very, very clear in its teaching that there is only one God... The Father is called God, the Son is called God, the Holy Spirit is called God, and that they are three separate persons. The difficult thing is putting those five teachings together. But that's what the doctrine of the Trinity is. That the Bible teaches that there is only one true God, but this one true God exists throughout all eternity as three equal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, I like to understand things, and I like to figure them out. But that does not give me the right to try to drag God off the throne and drag Him down and say, You're too complex, God. I don't know. I can't understand how you could be one God but three persons. And I'm going to drag you down and make you more, kind of create you in my image. I'm one being and one person, so I'm going to make you one being and one person. I don't have the right to do that. None of us do. If God reveals... What we know about God is what He reveals to us. Whether it's through nature, whether it's through our conscience, whether He miraculously speaks to our hearts, or whether He writes to us in His Word, what we know about God is what we learn from Him, period. And if God says, I am only one God, but I am three separate persons, then who is Phil Fernandez to say, no, you're not? And so I think it's very, very important that we understand the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses will argue that it wasn't until 300 A.D., the Council of Nicaea, and then about 400 A.D., the Council of Chalcedon, where they actually came out with the doctrine of the Trinity and that there was no doctrine of the Trinity in the first uh, three or four hundred years. Uh, that's not really the case. Though those councils got together and refuted heretics and pulled these five teachings together to come up with the doctrine of the Trinity, in the first three or four hundred years, when you read the writings of the apostolic fathers, they were the, the pupils of the apostles, uh, people like Ignatius, uh, Polycarp, uh, the author of the Epistle of Barnabas. Uh, when you read the writings of the Apostolic Fathers and then the early Church Fathers, the guys who came after them, they all taught that there's only one God. They referred to the Father as God. They referred to the Son as God. If you, if you read, uh, Polycarp was you know Polycarp's teacher was the Apostle John. He refers to Jesus as God. Um, Ignatius, who wrote even before Polycarp wrote, he wrote in 115 A.D., he refers to Jesus over and over again as our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's plastered all over his writings. Uh, But these guys also wrote that the Holy Spirit is God and that they are three separate persons. Now, they didn't pull all that together. They didn't do that until the heretics came up. And then they felt that they had to pull it all together and uh, systematically say exactly what the Bible was talking about and formulate one doctrine. But the fact is, the Christian church, from the time of Jesus Christ until now, has always taught that there is only one God, but that somehow, in a way that we don't understand, this one God eternally exists as three equal persons, the Father, the Son... And the Holy Spirit. And so that's the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, another doctrine that's being attacked today... By the way, every one of these doctrines is being attacked. Not all of them within the professing Christian church. Some of them, it's outside the Christian church. But another doctrine is creation by God. Because of a guy named Charles Darwin, who wrote The Origin of Species in 1859... And his uh, theory of evolution, or actually his, the evolutionary model. Uh, take a look at Genesis 1.1. Um, by the way, every true doctrine is going to refute some false doctrine. And with the doctrine of the Trinity, the teaching that there is only one God refutes polytheism. The teachings that there's many gods, the belief that there's many gods, such as uh, the Mormons hold to that. Uh, The teaching that Jesus is the Son, that that Jesus is God the Son, that refutes the Jehovah's Witnesses, Unitarian Universalists, uh, world religions, uh, non-Christian cults, uh, and the doctrine that the three separate persons refuse the Jesus-only movement, and the one is Pentecostalism. But creation by God... Refutes two different world views that are real strong in this country right now. Uh, One is atheistic evolution. Well, the Bible teaches that God created the universe. Therefore, if the Bible is true, evolution is false. Uh, Secondly, there are people, New Agers, that teach that God did not create the universe. They teach that God is the universe. Well, if the Bible teaches that God created the universe, and then therefore God is not the universe, then either pantheism is true or the Bible is true, but they can't both be true. And I think the evidence sides with the Bible and not with atheism or pantheism. But take a look at Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the heavens and the earth is just the Bible's way of saying the universe. Um... The Bible teaches about three heavens. Now, don't get confused with the Mormon doctrine on three heavens. Uh, Their doctrine of three heavens is, is really unbiblical. But the doctrine teaches, the Bible teaches that there's heavens, plural, and Paul says there's three of them because he said he was caught up to the third heaven, the throne room of God. Now, throughout the rest of the scriptures, you find sometimes the earth's atmosphere, the clouds, the birds in the sky, that's referred to as heaven. The sky, the earth's atmosphere. Other times, King David will talk, like in Psalm 19.1, he'll talk about the stars, the rest of the universe, and he refers to that as heaven. So the first heaven is the earth's atmosphere, the second heaven is the rest of the universe, and the third heaven is the throne room of God. Uh, So when the Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth, that means God created everything else that exists. In fact, in John 1, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, it makes this even clearer. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So, again, it's talking about the fact that God created all that exists. Look at Colossians chapter 1. Paul's letter to the Colossians. Colossians 1, verses 15-15. Take, take verses 15 to 17. It's talking about Jesus, and it says, And He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses will take the firstborn of all creation and try to try to make Jesus out to be a created being. The Bible uses firstborn in the sense of the preeminent one, the most important. Jesus is the most important of all creation because He is also the Creator. He's the Creator who became part of the creation by becoming a man. Verse 16 for by Him, by Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by Him and for Him. Verse 17, And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So talking about all things hold together. He not only created the universe, but He sustains it in existence. He keeps it in existence. If you did not have the power to bring yourself into existence, you, do, you also then do not have the power to keep yourself in existence. If God was the one who gave you the beginning of your existence, then you better depend on Him to keep you in existence. And so the Scriptures are real clear that God created the, the universe. Now, in Romans 1 and we don't have time to turn in verses 18 to 22, it basically tells us we have not seen the invisible God, but we've seen His creation, the visible work of His hands. Therefore, all men know, deep down inside, all men know that God exists. But then, Paul says, but many men suppress this truth, and then they profess to be wise, but they become fools. And what is being spoken about there is if you reject the truth of God as creator, then you will begin to speculate and come up with some foolish theory. And that's what Charles Darwin and Carl Sagan and people like that have done. They've come up with a a view that is extremely foolish. I mean, the idea that in some primordial soup, somehow a single-celled animal came out of that and evolved... Down the line until eventually man, humans evolve from apes. That is foolish. That is a lot of wishful thinking. Uh, we don't have time to go over all the evidence against evolution. Uh, I've got an audio cassette on it. I've got several videos on it where, where I handle the question. I've done a debate, debated the issue, and believe me, uh, the biggest argument for atheistic evolution. Uh, And it's actually the main argument they use once you really think about what's being said. The biggest argument for evolution is most scientists are evolutionists. It's kind of like when uh, Galileo got in trouble for saying that the earth revolved around the sun. He got in trouble because a, a, a pope was speaking infallibly. and said, no, no, I've decided this, and so you're wrong. Well, now, it's, it's, it's not the church that, that speaks infallibly, I guess. I guess it's the scientific community. Uh, but the fact is, there are many scientists out there with PhDs from Harvard and Yale that have recognized that there is no evidence for evolution. There are no missing links, no inter, uh, intermediary forms, uh, no missing links between major groups. There's no real evidence for evolution. In fact... The second law of thermodynamics basically teaches, it's about as close to a scientific fact as you can get, and it basically teaches that the amount of ener- usable energy in the universe is winding down. Therefore, the universe is winding down, but if it's winding down, if it's going to have an end, it had to be wound up, it had to have a beginning. But if the universe had a beginning, then it wasn't eternal. And whatever has a beginning needs a cause, because from nothing, nothing comes. Nothing is nothing, therefore nothing can do nothing, therefore nothing can cause nothing. Therefore, if something came into existence, something that already existed had to cause it to come into existence. Again, we don't have time to go deeper into this argumentation. We've got cassettes on that. I debated philosophy, professor, on God's existence and that type of thing. The evidence is out there. Uh, Christian scholars all over this country are winning debates in creation versus evolution and debates dealing with the existence of God. The fact of the matter is it's an obvious fact that God exists, uh, but it's also an obvious fact that most men don't want Him to exist. And they would rather either be atheist or just invent a God of their own who just happens to give them a thumbs up for everything they want to do. The the basic, the essence of free will is the fact that within the heart of each man is a thirst for God, a thirst that only God can quench, a thirst to transcend this earthly experience. Only God can quench that thirst, but there's also a drive for human autonomy. Deep down inside, each and every one of us here wants to be his own king. We want to do our own thing. And the whole test of this life is going to be determined by whether or not you decide, I'm going to give in to my drive for human autonomy, I'm going to be my own king, or whether you turn to your thirst for God and you recognize that only the carpenter from Nazareth can quench that thirst.